Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Elber Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I'm also a senior fellow at AEI and Julia Zoza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Sam Scove, um, who's a staff reporter, staff writer with Defense One. Um, he uh, is a very recognizable name from a number of other publications as well, including The New Republic, Mother Jones, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. He was reporting for a long time from Kiev and from across, from across Ukraine. We are thrilled to to have him with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Been a lot of news since we last convened for for a recording uh, of the of the Eastern Front, not least the Macron trip to to China, the um, leaks that supposedly revealed a slightly less than than fully optimistic picture. Of Ukrainian defenses and, and and their ability to push uh, the Russian invaders back. Uh, I'm not sure where to where to where to begin. Maybe we should start with the leaks themselves. Uh, Julia, uh, Giselle, if you have any thoughts on, you know, how we should be reading these, how much credibility we should attach to to what's been sort of reported, and 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 really what what the sort of relevant policy angle is going going from from where we are supposedly, if, if we take these leaks at face value? That's a really difficult question. The leaks were slightly out of date, um, or the information uh, was six weeks or a month old, or the assessment or whatever. By the same token, it was broadly consistent with um, some opinions that have come out of the Defense Department and the military senior leadership. <laughs> and there's also at least some prospect that it could be just, you know, mis- an attempt to mislead the Russians to to some degree or other. But materially, I'm not sure that it makes all that much difference. The Ukrainians are in a little bit of a bind in terms of international policy and strategy of having to conduct some sort of offensive uh, so that they can declare victory and rally support, uh, especially in this country, but also broadly uh, throughout the West. And there's also emerging thought that this is their one chance. So if you're Ukrainian, I think there's a little bit of a so what factor. And at the same token, a simple reading of the battlefield as it is means that there are only a really handful or a limited number of places that the Ukrainians uh, would want to attack. And uh, the number, the amount of resources that are available are also uh, somewhat constrained based upon the transfers of weaponry that have happened up until this point and the amount of training that can be accomplished. So again, what to exactly what the leaks tell us exactly, you know, other than too many people have too much access 
to classified information uh, is, is, you know, very difficult for me to assess. Yeah, that's sort of my takeaway too. It's surprising. It was surprising to me how little we actually learned, right? Um, 80% we knew, 20% we suspected. To that added the weirdness of some documents were doctored, But what was interesting to me in sort of this lack of news um, within the leaks was also the fact that many of them, from what I've seen and what the Post and the Journal and others put out, were just elevated um, press summaries. Um, And so with that in mind, there's... I do think that it speaks to or sort of confirms or it's being interpreted right now in Washington and beyond on on both sides of the Atlantic that no matter what these leaks are telling us in terms of data, we know we want to reinforce the fact that support is being reduced and that, like Giselle was saying, it's their one-time chance and we're all sort of waiting, counting down to whatever we think or we imagine the counteroffensive to be. And then just switching, as since we're doing a, a brief analysis, I don't know if there's anything to say about, uh, in terms of news about Macron beyond the video. <laughs> Has everybody seen the video with the music? <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, it's, um, uh, there's no words. One has to look it up um, the, uh, from, his, uh, from his visit. Again, sort of confirming in the same kind of manner uh, in the end that Macron dragged um, von der Leyen there to, in theory, be able to get more assurances or more help from the Chinese that they would call Russia and would speak some sense into Russia. And yet there's nothing new. Um, There's no major success within that. The only small piece of good news... um, uh, in in the greater picture is actually to me from today with Poland formally requesting permission to use German MiGs um, and Germany as soon as um, Poland put out the request this time Hallelujah confirming um, confirming the uh, the request or approving the request and so not a big piece of um, surprise or of news, but still kind of encouraging. If we can pivot, I would love to hear Sam on the leaks too, because I know he's been writing a little bit about that um, in uh, sort of a, a short assessment of the leaks. But Sam, you've returned relatively recently from Ukraine. Um, you're still mentally, we're hoping, one leg here, one leg there um, across the Atlantic. Um, how do you assess the leaks and what do you hear of Ukrainians assessing the leaks? Uh, my impression is similar to your own, that it, it reveals things that we either knew or guessed at. I think uh, the sentiment in Ukraine is there has to be a counteroffensive. Uh, th- this sort of information is it's damaging from a strategic perspective uh, in terms of any, as any sort of leak is, uh, but the specifics of this leak, any specific systems that were located like air defenses, those have been moved and the sort of grimness about casualty figures, things like that. I mean, Ukrainians live that every day. Uh, it's hard to find a Ukrainian now who doesn't at least have a friend of a friend who's died or seriously injured, especially in the more active parts of the population, people who who went and uh, wanted to go fight. Um, so I don't see the the leaks as having any particularly 
big impact uh, on Ukraine, except potentially a, a really a positive one in terms of mobilizing support for Ukraine in the West. Like, you know, there's information there about their uh, uh, reduction in anti-air missiles. So now that that is more publicly known, it theoretically creates greater pressure in the West. And like you said, with the the MiGs uh, potentially going to Ukraine, that's another piece in that puzzle. You know, though, to to sort of probably unfairly try to connect the Macron news with with the leaks and the the sort of uh, general situation, it does sort of suggest that there's a really difficult or fundamental cleavage in the Western alliance. Uh, it's really hard to know how this will turn out, and in particular, sort of which way Germany will jump or whether they'll continue to try to straddle the <clears throat> divide between Central and Eastern Europe and, and France. I mean, when it, yeah, well, the, the best line was uh, that I saw on Twitter was Macron going to Macron. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of a constant, right? Um, But it it certainly can only encourage, not like Putin's going to give up tomorrow or anything like that, but it reinforces two uh, sets of beliefs. One, that there's a reason for him to keep fighting in Ukraine. And to the degree that France is sort of, I'm going to say oversimplification, suggesting that it's possible to jump from one set of allies to another set of allies is not a good signal. The other sort of data point I would connect was the story about uh, Viktor Orban enumerating the United States as a major enemy. So this sort of devolution of the world into blocks seems to be, I mean, I think just an effect of the Ukraine war more broadly, but this might be a new stage in that. Sam, unless you you have a sort of immediate reaction to that, I, I still think that what is central is is what the United States does, just because of the absolute sheer size of the assistance that we've provided the Ukrainians with, and the fact that there is no substitute for it, and and there the the, the sort of Putin calculation that he just needs to wait until we get distracted, until there are other things happening in our politics, might not be a completely wrong-headed one. And I would hope that maybe these leaks will create a bit of a pressure, politically speaking, a greater sense of urgency. I mean, after all, a year from now, Biden will have to defend his record on Ukraine. And if we already know that, you know, the whatever, you know, for as long as it takes approach is not enough to sort of guarantee Ukrainian victory, uh, it will be very hard for him to defend that that policy, especially if it doesn't really lead to to. To, to a Ukrainian, Ukrainian victory. But I haven't seen any evidence of actual sort of policy changes happening. Maybe maybe there is stuff to be watching out for. I mean, you know, Sam, you are a reporter who's been writing this about this for uh, for, for a living. If there are sort of like any, you know, any any sort of headlines we should be watching out for, let us know. Yeah, it, it is uh, it is a little troubling. Um, I mean, for instance, like in the, the recent funding for the, for the army, for the, the various DOD funding that was just passed, they're still doing supplemental funding for Ukraine, it's it's not written into uh, large portions of the the standing U.S. defense budget, and there, we are still having these discussions about you know do we send cluster munitions to Ukraine? Do we send uh, F-16s? Do we send uh, MQ-9 Reapers? Uh, there's a lot of things that uh, the Ukrainians, in one way or another, have asked for, 
which are still being held back. Theoretically, it would be nice if, if these leaks create that extra degree of pressure. I think the historically, though, it's it's been really locked into German and French decision making and, and uh, wanting to maintain some sort of alliance uh, posture. So some of it's that, that public pressure, some of that appears to be sort of inter-elite dynamic network where uh, everyone's agreed. And I, I think after after Trump sort of broke a lot of the, the social conventions of running NATO, uh, there's probably an eagerness to do everything jointly and, and with, with maximum respect for partners. Uh, but the, the tricky thing then is that that, that leads to a uh, decision by committee effect where uh, if someone is uncomfortable, like the Germans have said they're uncomfortable with cluster munitions, there are obviously issues with cluster munitions that puts a pin in it. Uh, F-16s, different countries have different ratings of what escalatory risk looks like. And so in that sense, the, the leaks may not ultimately be as, as powerful. I think it, it is quite interesting about this this block politics uh, that you mentioned, um, Giselle, because uh, at the same time you see certain countries that we would have expected to be quite uh, anti-Ukraine, like Serbia, quietly agreeing to send some weapons. So there is probably a, a nuance to uh, certain countries not wanting to, to be publicly anti-Russia, but privately agreeing to things. And certainly we've seen lots of cooperation between Serbia on a sort of lower level, uh, even as more public demonstrations are more, you know, quote unquote, pro-Russian. But yeah, I, I think there's the, the sort of joint, the, the, the U.S. administration's discomfort with anything that's escalatory is, is still very much there. It's going to take a lot to shift that. It does seem that there's an important point of inflection that is on the horizon. And again, who knows how the leaks will play into this. My understanding is that the, and Sam, please correct me if I'm wrong about this, that the drawdown authority that has currently been authorized or you know, the monies that have been appropriated for drawdown purposes are kind of running short, like we're down to like $3 billion or some ridiculously low number like that. So it presents the administration with a little bit of a conundrum, like when do they... Are they going to ask for more? When are they going to ask for more? How much more are they going to ask for? And in particular, uh, how are they going to twist Kevin McCarthy's arm to bring some legislation to the floor, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, all these, you know, different threads are kind of converging into a point where the administration has to at least do something more, even if it's just going to keep this, you know, baby step policy moving forward. Yeah, I think they're going to get asked really hard questions because, I mean, another one of those uh, topics in the document is a, a fairly negative assessment of the uh, likelihood of a really successful counteroffensive. And then even if it is successful, will that bring the Russians to the table? So at the same time as they're saying, you know, we're, we're in it to win it, they, they're, and uh, they're not providing that much aid, and they seem aware that, that uh, it is insufficient, especially this strategy of releasing it in tranches. To a degree, you can argue that that's related to military necessity. But but certain parts of those, like vehicles, uh, theoretically could have been sent a long time ago. So that is a little disappointing. I, I think that the sort of distance between the where we're willing to be in it as long as it takes and the the actual levels of sustained support are yeah are, are gradually the, the distance between those two is gradually starting is converging yeah yeah and, and we haven't really clarified what it is right <laughs> that we're in for. <laughs> um, 
So, so then to kind of nudge you or push you slightly more on this before we drop the topic off of um, uh, what is happening in the next few months, what are your what is your fear in terms of what what's your assessment of the needs that the Ukrainian armed forces has and has not been met? What's what's the thing that they or the things that they need most and will not have um, for the counteroffensive? And how do you beyond the leaks, but you know, spending a year or longer um, in in Ukraine recently coming back? How do you assess the the chances of a successful counteroffensive? What are you hoping for for the next couple three months? Within that broad assessment, one of the things that's a little hard to know, uh, just because Ukrainians are much better at operational security than anybody else, is sort of what how much weight do we think they'll be able to bring to bear because it's been such a you know animal farm of systems that they've had to integrate. Uh, there was a story the other day, sort of very touching one, about uh, Ukrainians have trained on the Challenger, sort of waving goodbye to their British trainers being sent back to. But the, the, the just to maybe lead the witness a little bit, the best analysis or the most positive analysis that I've heard is that Ukrainians might have about nine brigades worth of relatively modern and mobile uh, forces to yeah. strike wherever that is they that they decide to strike which is not you know an overwhelming numerical superiority so i wonder if you have any just refining thoughts but within the framework of what Yulia was asking yeah i mean the, the top line items i think have been obvious for a long time like armored vehicles more ammunition, things like that. Those are all great um, in terms of things that are also going to make a, a huge difference that I think are unsung is the lack of training. I mean, you had a, a relatively professional but still very developing army. Uh, a lot of those guys, unfortunately, died in the last year of fighting um, in, in you know, all sorts of circumstances. The army now between, you know, the deaths of soldiers and people being called up is largely unprofessional uh, and training varies immensely. So you may get commanders, it's sometimes up to individual commanders, whether or not to make sure tr soldiers are trained on tactical medicine. And that, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, issues with, uh, or there can be issues with kit as well, uh, whether or not individual soldiers have you know, the, the tactical medicine kits. So you're talking about an army that if it does have training is largely trained on the battlefield. And we, we do have capacity uh, to train across uh, more secure sites in Western Europe. Uh, I think it's 7,000 Ukrainian soldiers or so have been trained according to the US and then there's 20,000 plus in the UK, but on very, very accelerated time schedules. So one area that the US probably could have done a better job in is more training for Ukrainian troops. I imagine there's a fear that that looks escalatory and uh, that you're having direct NATO to Ukrainian soldiers interactions. Um, but that's probably the unsung issue of this this counteroffensive is it's, it's great. I mean, the ammunition is one thing, but if you have soldiers who, who don't really know how to shoot and maneuver, that's a whole other issue. I think the actual chances for the counteroffensive are, I mean, it, it, you, you hear all sorts of different information, you know, that they're in, the Russians have entrenched the South heavily, but that the entrenchments are designed to face a Russian style assault, not a more creative, um, lower unit command sort of assault that the Ukrainians might do. That land is so flat. I was there in February in just in front of, uh, Zaporozhye in the town of Hulepole. 
it's very, I mean, any assault, no matter how well it goes, it's going to be pretty grim. Uh, and you're going to see very high casualty numbers like you saw in Hoson. So it's it's very hard to predict the outcome, but it's going to be grim. Try to deduce some lessons from Kherson for what we might see coming. And yes, I mean, many of the Russian defenders in Kherson were, they had more better troops there. Obstacles are one thing, but obviously you have to cover the obstacles with fire and all the all the rest of the things. And then conversely, on the Ukrainian side, I, you know, I would say one thing that we know relatively little about is their ability to synchronize. Tactically, the Ukrainians have been superb in defense, sort of on a small, relatively small tactical scale. So now they have to both step it up in terms of complexity of operations and scale of operations. So uh, now what do you say? So, so, so Sam, before you respond, uh, I think this is the perfect time since you mentioned training already to plug your Defense One report which provided really important qualifications to sort of two pieces of conventional wisdom that, I mean, I certainly was, you know, like have taken for 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 for, for granted, namely uh, that the Ukrainian military has has moved on from the sort of Soviet style tactics and 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 command structures, and also that the NATO training programs over the years before the invasion uh, played an important role in all of that, and, and a new sort of you know not quite debunk those two statements but 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 qualify them in 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 very important ways so so and we'll link the article in the show notes uh but if you want to respond to giselle and also give us uh the the gist of your of your story that would be great sure yeah and and to sum up the article uh loads of american officials came out right at the beginning of the war to say that part of the success around key was related to NATO training, which, you know, emphasizes uh, lower level leadership being empowered to make decisions. The The tricky thing is we, we did not actually train a very large number of troops in, in those NATO tactics in, in Western Ukraine before the war. It's a very limited engagement and uh, it did not always sink in. There, there's still loads of guys in the Ukrainian army who are from the Soviet era and it's it's no knock on their bravery or intelligence, but they uh, are, are less eager to learn those lessons. And then another factor is in this huge army, if you're calling in officers who are former reservists, you might have a guy who you know was in his 50s uh, and his last command as a major uh, or captain was you know, before the Soviet Union collapsed or before, you know, 2010, 2011, when, when U.S., you know, engagements with the U.S. Uh, started to come into play. And, and so the, the, the idea that, like, Ukraine is a, a super high-tech NATO army where, where every NCO has a lot of power is, is just, it can be true. But it's it's not systemically true, uh, and so when it comes to combined arms, I think it's going to be it, it's very very tricky because the the way I mean the Ukrainians are very in, in innovative and adaptive. What I did a lot of like embeds with and uh, talking with drone units, and so their method of targeting could just be as simple as you know we know these units are in front of us. We're going to get about our cell phone numbers. We're going to communicate with them on signal. They send us information. We you know, almost like you're running a startup. How well that works with a combined arms assault uh, versus just a defensive uh, w- work is, is I think, a pretty complicated question. I, I mean, in, in Herson, you, you saw, I mean, talking to people who were there in that fight, 
looking at other people's news reporting, there was a lot of losses, especially armor losses, where the Ukrainians just got hammered. And th and also, those guys are now dead, right? Like, you know, if you, if you send your experienced armor brigades into Kherson, and you take heavy losses, that the experience of those guys is now lost. So the, the, the role that these guys who have been trained in the UK and um, Germany by, by US forces is, is going to be huge. They do have an advantage because, you know, the guy, some of the guys who are training there have combat experience. They're not, we're not talking about taking an 18 year old American who's never seen combat and giving them up to, up to speed. But I, I think it is going to be a, a huge challenge. Part of the reason the Kharkiv counteroffensive was so successful People may be drawing the wrong lessons from that in that the Russians were very, very weakly staffed there. People I talked to who were occupied described the people at the line, you know, the, the soldiers there as being, you know, dressed in essentially like track suits because they were militia men from the uh, occupied Ukrainian LNR DNR territories. And with this type of scenario, obviously the Russians have also been, you know, battered and exhausted. But I, I think the, the U.S.'s projections that it's going to be a, a very tough fight are, are very accurate. Yeah, training is a huge issue. And, and I think a lot of uh, Ukrainians also are know about this. I mean, you know, it, it might not be something that their, their public officials say, but loads of people I've, I've known, like if, you, if, you go, if you're going to try to serve, you try to serve with your friends. So, uh, because that, those are people who you know that they've given a, a, a stamp of good behavior for whatever commander they're working for, uh, and, and there's a there's a high premium on joining the um, the sort of infantry formations that came out of volunteer groups. So, Hartia, which is a, a, an infantry formation out of Kharkiv, which is uh, funded and, and led by a, a businessman there. Uh, obviously, the reformation of Azov, like those are very popular in part because people believe that their lives are going to be more valued, not necessarily because there's, you know, corruption or bad behavior, but because you're getting younger officers, more motivated officers, people who are going to, who know what tactical medicine looks like, things like that. Thank you for bringing up several times now something that I think gets for obvious reasons, but um, but despite our attempts, even on our podcast, um, sort of sideline, and that is the massive losses that you Ukraine is taking and um, and it fits into much of their perspective and our acquaintances there and, and colleagues who are saying it's not just the losses but it's the best of the best um, that have the experience um, that have the motivation to and um, and so you're you're bringing this into uh, from an individual story into more of um, uh, a community story, and I think that's and that's really very relevant. So thank you for that. And you just mentioned Kharkiv, so I want to ask you: you've given us a little bit of insight on the challenges of the Kherson um, uh, counteroffensive, and I'm going to leave for a second the rumors and speculations aside. How offen counteroffensive or counteroffensives will look like in parallel this summer? compared to um, last year, but we had the Kherson Kharkiv connection, right? Um, and so if you are to, with your experience on the ground, if you are to compare the challenges, but also the sort of lessons learned from the two of them, um, can you talk to us a little bit from that perspective about Kharkiv as well? Sure. I mean, probably the biggest one is the element of surprise. I mean, Right before the Kharkiv counteroffensive, everyone was talking about Kherson as being the the next target, and most people were incredibly surprised uh, that I talked to that, that Kharkiv <laughs> happened and was such a success. So, part of a lot of people in the back of their heads, I think, are thinking, 
there's so much being said about a southern counteroffensive. There's other locations where a counteroffensive could hit. I, I think that's something we should all be aware of. Exactly. And, and east versus south, a lot of speculations there too that the Russians might be pushing, that the Ukrainians, sorry, might be pushing for a Bahmut actually um, to show that um, sort of as a as a heart, uh, parallel to Herson focus, but then um, but then pushing through the south to later on something like that. I've heard several times. Can we actually sort of do a you know quasi course of action uh, exercise here? Maybe we could just you know constrain it to east versus south. Or, or Sam, if you have uh, other candidates. I'd just be interested in your analysis and what what maybe some of the pluses and minuses of either direction uh, would hold for for the Ukrainians. Yeah, I, I mean, South is is a is a great choice for a lot of reasons. Obviously, it, it cuts off Russia's land bridge to Crimea, uh, and so it, it theoretically threatens the center of gravity for Russia. If you want to argue that Crimea is the center of gravity, uh, and so theoretically pushes Russia to the negotiating table. There's obviously large Ukrainian populations that are still under, under occupation, and, and so it has value as well there. The argument against it is is obvious that just be, because it's it's a clear target, uh, and so the Russians are reinforced. I think one thing that I mean the East is is also I mean it has the element of surprise, and theoretically it has the it, it has Russian Russian forces have overextended and exhausted themselves in that fight. They've taken terrific losses there, uh, and it it could be the sort of situation like it, like in Kharkiv where uh, certain areas are not as rigorously staffed. The obvious, or maybe it's not so obvious, is that Russian troops in the Bakhmut area are are mostly uh, Wagner, and although there is this mass of Wagner conscripts who are not trained particularly well. There is also a section of Wagner that, because it exists outside of the Russian military structure, does learn in the same way that the Ukrainians do, with a fair amount of learning and trial and uh, experimentation. And so Ukrainian soldiers give that group of Wagner pretty high marks. The big question, I, I, I think, if they were to go in the East, is is what it gives them other, other than just you know, depleting Russians' morale and killing more of their soldiers. I think it would be a fantastic headline to read in the morning. You know, Ukraine's role, <laughs> the Russians out of Bakhmut. But it's, I think the tricky thing is what is like Russia's center of gravity? What what really ends this war? And more, more war in the Donbass, I don't think they'd care that much about. And so it makes more strategic sense to me still to, to go for the South because that, yeah, that, that threatens seemingly what the Russians care about, which is Crimea. And Crimea has become so central to the discussion yeah, everywhere, especially in the West, that even Americans have intuited the centrality of uh, Crimea to uh, the ultimate outcome. Sam, I'm, I suspect we have many more questions we could ask you, including on you know the many stories you've written from Ukraine, a fascinating article on on the life under Russian occupation in Kherson that you did for RFERL last year. But I'm also aware of the fact that Giselle wants to avoid being kicked out of her verbo accommodation in, in California. So I'm afraid we'll, we'll have to bring you back uh, and at some point in the coming weeks and months. I propose we, when the counteroffensive begins that, that we sort of do regular updates with, with Sam. I mean, somebody who knows the Ukrainian military inside and out is would be hugely valuable. You should definitely do that. In the meantime, Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. From Dali Burohaj. And very human Giselle Donnelly and... Yudia Shosha. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. 
a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes for more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.